Welcome to Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 7, Episode 8. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. In our second of three episodes, recorded live in the Vegas Grocery Shop 2023 Podcasting Studio, our Vantage Podcasting Studio, our guest is Barbara Connors, Vice President, Strategy and Acceleration at 8451. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed this episode. First of all, Barbara is super insightful and interesting. Um, we kind of touch on this a little bit, this idea of creating kind of the one-to-one future. <laughs> We've been talking about leveraging personalization, leveraging data for, for so many years, and I think it's happening more and more. And what Barbara's doing at uh, 8451, this division of uh, super interesting division of Kroger, is mm-hmm. uh, quite, quite fascinating. Now, I'm just going to point out really quickly, Keen listeners may notice a slight difference in audio quality during the interview. We had a little bit of a technical gremlin, so this episode was actually recorded in two parts. Uh, Not super noticeable, but I just want to, I guess, in the spirit of full transparency, mention that to people. Yeah, she was very, uh, very kind and joined us back on the mic uh, a second time, so thanks again to uh, Barbara for doing that. All right, well, let's get right into the news. I'm sensing uh, headwinds in the U.S. economy. Uh, we've got thing, everything from the government shutdown. I mean, we're hearing about it up here in Canada, and there's a whole bunch of other things going on. So uh, share what you're, what you're observing around uh, the economic or the state of the economy. Well, there's a few things that are very specific to the U.S., so I'll go through them quickly because uh, given our, <laughs> our international audience, it may not be super fascinating. But, yeah, we're uh, – well, who knows by the time this episode – comes out. We'll see what happens over the weekend. There's this uh, big risk that the U.S. government is going to shut down, and that would not be awesome for the economy, I mm-hmm. guess, depending upon how much, uh, how long that might last. Uh, our, our government here can't seem to get out of its own way. That could be a big issue. Uh, we also had some news. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that's going on very specific to the U.S. is the UAW, the United Auto Workers strike. Uh, you know, auto is obviously a huge industry. If that strike persists, that could add some headwinds. Uh, consumer confidence is down again, uh, went down quite a lot, which is mm-hmm. the fourth consecutive month um, or it's the lowest in four months. Home sales have been tough for a while, most uh, noticeably because of the interest rates. Uh, so, you know, a lot of these things just keep keep kind of piling up in addition to stuff we've been talking about for the last several months. Right. Now, we also had uh, a big uh, Amazon announcement, right, from the Justice Department. Uh, you know, this, these things are all happening at the same time, it seems. Maybe it's just coincidence, but any any thoughts on that? Yeah, Alina Horn, um, I think that's her name. I feel like when I said that, that's not quite right. <laughs> Lena, Lena at, jazz uh, singer, I the think federal. I yes, right. Exactly. So uh, that's not right. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Lena, my best friend at the FTC, uh, yeah, announced a long, uh, long rumored uh, suit, antitrust suit against Amazon. You know, there's there's definitely schools, different schools of thought as to how strong the case is. There's one group I think that sees this as quite obvious, uh, particularly around Amazon's relationship with its marketplace sellers, that they leverage their dominance in that part of the business. So the kind of the B2B part of the business to uh, get certain behaviors out of their marketplace sellers to, in essence, fix pricing. Then there's also the consumer side of it. And that's the one I think that's a little less clear because I think it's pretty obvious that Amazon has brought a lot of convenience to the market that in general prices are lower 
because of Amazon's position in the marketplace. And there are plenty of other places for consumers to go to get many of the products that Amazon sells. So it's a pretty complicated case uh, and definitely different schools of thought as to how strong the mm. case is. So this is obviously going to take a while to resolve itself, sure. but uh, it's it's pretty big move in terms of the Biden administration going after kind of big tech. Uh, there's also things going on with Google and perhaps others. So definitely something to watch. And then we had another piece of Amazon news, uh, totally unrelated to the FTC action, is that they're planning to invest up to $4 billion in an AI startup. It's kind of amazing that you could have <laughs> that kind of investment in a startup uh, called um, Anthropic. This is considered to be kind of Amazon's first big foray in an attempt to compete more directly with Microsoft and Alphabet in the generative AI sector. So this is really a, an AWS initiative. And as part of the deal, Amazon's getting a minority stake in Anthropic for $1.25 billion. They've got the option to increase that investment up to the $4 billion number that I just mentioned. In exchange, one of the things that Anthropic is doing is AWS will be their primary provider for their cloud infrastructure. And then Anthropic is going to give some uh, AWS customers early access to some of the features that they already have and presumably will be developing over the next couple of years. So, uh, Hmm. you know, once again, Amazon with its vast scope, uh, making some moves. You know, I was a little surprised by the announcement, not that Amazon surprised me by investing in companies, but I I had heard maybe last year or some point that there are more people working on AI at Amazon than like anything else practically. So I'm just kind of surprised they didn't develop it themselves, that they went to a startup because, you know, they've been really focused on it. So I guess it's just, you know, it just t- speaks to innovation and where innovation comes from, even in, in big companies. Any any thoughts on that? Like that struck me as, you know, Amazon generally builds more than buys. Um, but w- what did you think? Well, I think they do a mix. You know, you could certainly look at this as, I mean, even though $4 billion sounds like a lot of money, it's really not mm. a lot of money to Amazon. And at this point, it's just that initial minority stake. So I think it's creating some optionality. So they may just be kind of hedging their bets. I mean, there's definitely kind of a land grab thing going on in the world of AI. So uh, I'm sure there's pressure for them yeah. to accelerate what they're doing and to perhaps diversify their options. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And by the way, it's Lena Khan. Um, I don't want to endure the wrath of Khan by getting uh, getting her name wrong. So I had I had the intern working on uh, working on that while we were recording. <laughs> Um, All right. um, News coming out of Target. And uh, this is all connected. There's a few points of uh, news on LP. Of course, it's been a a discussion point for a while. What uh, what did you make of Target closing nine stores? Well, I promised last week that we wouldn't spend every episode on retail theft. And so (laughs) here we are. And here we are. Here we are. Well, I think it's a pretty interesting story. So a couple things going on. Yeah. Target announced that they're closing nine stores. Uh, urban stores in, uh, I think, four cities, citing both the increase in retail theft, uh, particularly from organized crime, as well as worries about consumer safety. I think a couple of things are going on here. One is that I think this is basically a cry for help. Uh, if you think about the causes, you know, the, you know, like the underlying causes of some of the increases in in theft. 
you know, you've got everything from the organized crime. You've got, uh, you could argue, relatively lax policing and legislation in some communities that that don't, um, you know, make the consequences of yeah, theft Prop not as high as they might be. Yeah. So, yeah. so you, you know, you've got that. Um, so I think if you think about what retailers can do to manage this issue, there's there aren't that many things really that are within their control, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to say, hey, we need help from from governments, from municipalities, perhaps trying to get other retailers like, you know, big uh, important retailers like like Walmart, Costco, perhaps to join in this. I mean, I think it's it's uh, that's part of what Brian Cornell and Target are trying to do. Um, I don't want to be cynical about it because I take them at their word, but I think this could be a bit of a smokescreen. And what I mean by that is, and I think we talked about this actually on an episode of the pod, part of, you know, in the context of smaller store strategy, Target's been embarking on a smaller store uh, city target strategy for many, many years. So this was a way of growing more outlets, but particularly in urban areas. And that strategy is very challenged, not just because of the cost of operating, which is you know generally high in urban areas, but you've got your know, cost of labor going up, but you've got this theft issue. But you have, I'm sure, a big hit to the revenue of these stores, largely because of work from home. You know, mm. we've still got office occupancy, which isn't just urban offices. This is all uh, urban offices. But we've talked about some of the cities where the daytime traffic is, you know, only 45, 50, 60% yep. of what it used to be. So, I, you know, I think a strategy that they saw driving a lot of growth has hit a wall, both because of the challenges in revenue, as well as the increased cost of operating. So I think we have to, again, not that the issues they're pointing out aren't real, but um, I think this is giving them some air cover for, for, um, Basically saying, you know, this this strategy is not, you know, going to work for us because of some things mm-hmm. that weren't anticipated. COVID, <laughs> you know, yeah. primarily uh, yeah, when yeah. they embarked upon it. Yeah, I don't know if uh, the NRF NRF put out a study there. Uh, I guess now an annual study of, uh, of loss prevention, and and it may validate what you're saying because at the high level, you know, the the top notes are that the percentage of theft hasn't or shrink. We should be clear on shrink versus theft hasn't changed. Now, qualitatively, the retailer said it's got more violent, more aggressive. I'll put a link in the show notes for that, and you can kind of read, your listeners can read that. But it's just, you know, interesting context around, um, you know, at the high end, the numbers aren't changing as much as you would think perceptually by the amount of uh, media coverage or the amount of uh, lines of the uh, earnings statements that occupies. All right. Let's move off of uh, uh, loss prevention and uh, let's talk about earnings for a little bit. Uh, Nike's uh, earnings out. What did you make of them? Yeah, we had three that I thought were worth just uh, touching on, perhaps one more than the other. Um, Nike, uh, they beat actually on on their earnings, but essentially their sales were pretty anemic, uh, down a little bit in North America, up a little bit internationally. So, you know, I think this is a function, as I think we've touched on before, you know, a lot more competition in the space, particularly in the footwear business from from, uh, brands like Hoka and On Running. Um, They did get their inventory better in line. That's been a a concern for several quarters, and it now appears that they're going into the fourth quarter in better position. But, you know, selling, uh, you know, largely discretionary products, I think we're seeing um, 
that challenge pretty consistently, not only in the U.S., but in other markets. Same kind of story with Costco, uh, also basically flat sales. They did a bit, little bit better on earnings. You know, this focus on getting costs out, I think, is, is really what's driving that. Their grocery business was solid, but they pointed out that the discretionary categories were down. So I think this is just the pattern we continue to see from just about everybody. The other interesting thing, and they're not a public company, so we don't have nearly as much detail, but JCPenney put out a report on how they're doing. And I have to say, I'm getting a little PTSD from this because of uh, what I consider kind of the Sears vibes that Mm. uh, Penny's is, is, is putting out. I think we, I think we talked about on the podcast at one point when they were talking about how their traffic was up a lot. Yeah. But I was like, you know, I don't know, like something doesn't yeah. add up for me. Well, now we've got some numbers. And yes, their traffic was up, but their sales were down 10% for the quarter. Now think about what that means. I mean, we don't mm-hmm. know exactly, right? But if your traffic was up considerably, but your sales were down 10%, that means either your conversion was terrible, mm-hmm. or I guess, and it could be a little bit of both, your average order went down a lot. Yeah, your AUR went down. Right, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I think this is a very, I mean, sales down 10% is much worse than the rest of the department stores, which have been down. It's a big um, number. So clearly losing number. market yeah. share. Yeah. Um, the traffic being up, I think, you know, they put a lot of effort into marketing. They've been making a big deal about their new beauty initiative. So mm-hmm. if you're getting traffic in there and people aren't converting, um, that suggests, I think, some pretty uh, pretty challenging issues. Now, they did call out uh, some success in cost cutting. Their inventory is down. Of course, you know, it could be that they're suffering from out of stocks. That's another possible explanation for poor yep. conversion. Yep. So I don't People necessarily finding the stuff to buy. Yeah, yeah so I don't necessarily look at that as a as a good sign. So um, now they've got because of the bankruptcy filing they went through. Uh, they don't have a lot of debt. Uh, they basically don't mm-hmm. pay any rent, so their cost structure is such that you know they're not hemorrhaging cash because of this sales decrease and because of their ownership structure. There's a lot of interest in you know kind of keeping them afloat. So I don't think this suggests we're going to suddenly see a lot of store closings, uh, but it, but definitely a very poor trajectory. Uh, let's finish off with um, you know I don't know what to make of these things. GameStop. <laughs> uh, names a new ceo uh you know we gamestop's a meme now there's a movie about it uh, what do you right what do you, what do you make of all this well so there's this guy ryan cohen who i would say has kind of a checkered history he um he made his money as far as i know from being one of the founders of chewy also has been you know kind of a hedge fundish sort of guy getting involved with for example bed bath and beyond um and then uh, also gamestop so yeah, GameStop's been on this wild ride in terms of their valuation. They basically were for uh, like if you go on uh, to Yahoo Finance or whatever and look at the five year trend in the stock price, it's quite extraordinary because yeah. you've got like three years of it being at a very low level, and then it takes off like crazy, like the Swiss uh, Alps. Yes, uh, and uh, because of this meme stock thing, which I still don't totally understand but basically you know people that don't know anything about stocks getting excited about stocks and <laughs> the price going uh going up and then of course eventually people realize that this is nothing and uh the stock kind of crashes back down to earth so you've got that whole backdrop to this thing well anyway he's now he was i think the 
uh, acting chairman or something for a while. Now he's stepped mm-hmm. in to be CEO and basically has said that uh, we need to, we being GameStop, it's kind of an interesting email that people got their hands on. If you want to read something uh, quite, you know, similarly a wild ride, the email's kind yeah, of a yeah. wild ride. But the main thing that he talked about was that uh, the company needs to engage in extreme frugality mm. because without extreme frugality, mm. the survival of the company as an mm-hmm. issue. So no more muffins at the meetings, I guess. Apparent, apparently not. So, I mean, you know, obviously GameStop uh, has had their business impacted by the shift to, you know, all things digital essentially and yeah. you know, streaming and all, all mm. those, those kinds of things. They've tried to diversify a bit, but mostly the diversification seems to be adding a bunch of random stuff to their stores, which I'm not sure is a, is a compelling strategy. So uh, we shall see, but I think uh, let's just say the, the heat is on at GameStop. Well, I'm looking forward to the movie that's about the meme stocks. Uh, Canadian Seth Rogen, isn't it? So there, there you go. There's my uh, episode. There's your episode Canadian plot. reference. Can't Canadian get out reference. without a Canadian reference. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the news. Uh, let's get to our really fantastic interview with uh, Barbara Connors from 8451. Well, Barbara Connors, we're excited to have you join us on the Remarkable Retail Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Well, we've got a lot to talk about, so let's just jump in. But before we kind of get into the, uh, I guess, content portion of the program, could you just uh, quickly tell us a little bit about yourself, your backgrounds, personal and professional journey, what you do for a living, those those kinds of things? I lead strategy and acceleration for the Commercial Insights and Loyalty Group at 8451. I got my master's uh, of marketing research and marketing degrees from the University of Georgia, so go dogs. Uh, and have spent my career in and around consumer insights. Uh, I spent seven years at Dunhumby USA and have been with 8451 for the past eight, having moved over when Kroger acquired us in 2015. In my current role, I am responsible for several centers of excellence, including commercial solutions, marketing and thought leadership, and long-range planning. Excellent. Well, we're going to dig into what 8451 is about and some of the things you're working on. But as you mentioned, uh, 8451 is part of Kroger. Now, lots of folks in our audience will know exactly what we're talking about uh, when we're talking about Kroger, but we do have an international audience. So just quickly for folks that may not be as familiar with Kroger at a high level, could you just kind of give everybody a little bit of a reminder or insight as to what Kroger is about? Kroger is an American retailer. Uh, We operate under a number of banners in the U.S. We've got more than 2,700 stores, and we serve 11 million customers daily through a seamless shopping experience. We focus on connecting customers with fresh, affordable food that they need to thrive. And as part of this commitment, Kroger works to create communities free from hunger and waste through our Zero Hunger, Zero Waste initiative. Very nice. Well... Let's uh, let's dig into now to what 8451 is about and uh, some of the things you're working on there. So 8451 is a retail data science, insights, and media company. Uh, as I mentioned before, we were acquired by Kroger in 2015, so we are a wholly owned subsidiary. And what we do is we apply cutting-edge science to our first-party data asset that has more than 62 million households. And we really use that to create more personalized and valuable experiences for shoppers across the path to purchase. Uh, When we work with CPGs, agencies, and affiliates, 
We really engage with them across three main commercial businesses, um, our insights business, loyalty marketing, and our retail media arm, Kroger Precision Marketing. Barbara, the uh, 8451, is that is that a function of pi or where did that name come from? <laughs> uh, 8451 is, uh, it's actually the longitudinal coordinates of Cincinnati, yeah. which is both where Kroger and 8451 are headquartered. Um, so there are sort of several uh, special things about the name. One, of course, being a, a nod to our home. Yeah. The other is, of course, it is a name of numbers and we are led and driven by data. Um, and being the longitudinal coordinates, it also is a, a reminder for us of the longitudinal approach we take to um, analysis and collaboration uh, with all of our, our partners. I would love to be in the room when the agency proposed that name and everybody went, their heads kind of tilted and then it all kind of, hey, it does make sense. <laughs> uh-huh. it, it makes a good conversation topic. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, thanks for sharing. You know, we'll, we'll get into more about um, the current evolving consumer patterns and spending and brand choice. It's a very dynamic environment as, as consumers adjust to food inflation. But I want to start out with, with your thoughts on any bigger changes around consumer behavior post-COVID. The, the COVID year, I've described it sometimes as a, as a broomstick in, the, in a bicycle spoke. It, it really did seem to change some fundamental things, particularly around food and, and nutrition. What, what have you tracked and, and how are you guys thinking about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as we think about some of the big, large scale shifts that have happened in both consumer shopping behavior and relationships with food and health, there are, there are really several big things that the pandemic brought on. First, from a shopping standpoint, it was certainly a catalyst for what we've seen in the, the U.S. as just a massive acceleration of e-commerce adoption. Uh, it, it happened at the, at the beginning because people had to uh, for uh, personal safety. And then, uh, of course, it stuck uh, for many reasons because of the, the convenience that it provides. The second sort of big shift that happened was because of all the quarantining, uh, we saw a big growth in food consumption at home mm-hmm. uh, and the shift from away from home and restaurants back back to the kitchen table. And we see this as a shift that's uh, or a trend that's really stuck um, today for several reasons. One is that while people started doing it because they had to, many found that they enjoyed cooking and, and eating at home. Uh, and several found that it is a way that they could eat healthier and have more control over the food that they put in their body. And then the last is as inflation rose, uh, it's a more economical option for, for many folks versus eating uh, out. And so many are choosing to sort of continue doing it because it is uh, cheaper. Uh, and the sort of last big shift I'd say that came from the pandemic was um, really sentiment around health. Hmm. Uh, certainly, um, there was heightened awareness around um, health safety, say when the, when the pandemic started, but it also brought with it a lot of heightened awareness around mental health and more holistic and sustainable health as well that um, certainly carries through today as people are less concerned with sort of contracting uh, COVID, but still considering how they can um, have more like preventative health measures and, and live a long, healthy life. Interesting. I want to I dive into that for sure. Quick question. You know, one of the, the characteristics of shopping during COVID was fewer trips and huge baskets, right? I'm, yeah. Um, I've had retailers tell me that they're seeing more. It's kind of resumed a little bit. It, it has changed a bit. Um, fewer trips, bigger baskets. And then something I've called cash flow shopping. And I, I wonder if you've detected this, where consumers are 
are shopping and instead of spending more money on a bigger value item, they're, they're spending less money uh, ultimately on their budget. It's a little less per ounce more expensive, but they're, they're watching their wallets a little closer. Any of those two things resonate with you? We see both of those things happening, actually. So as we look at the, the rise of inflation and how different consumers are leveraging different tactics to stretch their budgets, um, some are buying in bulk. So you said they are looking at sort of they can get a cheaper per ounce price by buying more today. And that's a, a way that they can save money in the long term. Many others also have a fixed budget. And so in order to get all the things they need on their list, we see them trading down to smaller sizes. We also see uh, uh, a shift where there are many customers who are making more frequent, smaller trips. Um, so we see sort of both ends of the spectrum happening. And it really highlights the fact that everyone has different constraints mm -hmm. and everyone is navigating this environment where you have inflation and constrained budgets differently based on the um, the tools that they have and um, the the resources that they have to pull on and, and how it can best fit into both their habit and their budgets. So interesting. Now, let's dive into the health a little bit because it, it really fascinates me this, uh, and, and you would be aware of it, the trend that the food is nutrition trend, which is kind of a maybe a natural outgrowth, so to speak, of non-GMO, plant-based, cleaner ingredient decks, more local. Are, are, these, are these phrases kind of resonating with you? Are you seeing more interest in, in this, whether it's from COVID or just you know, just people kind of coming to the fact that food is, is nutrition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, uh, we actually did a study at the turn of the new year last year, because, you know, having healthier or making healthier choices is always top of folks mm -hmm. list as they're setting new year's resolutions. And what came out was, um, more of a focus on thinking about the functional benefits of food. Right. Um, and, uh, what we saw is there's some, some, differences that come when we think about what shoppers of different demographics and, and age cohorts are looking for. So uh, as one example, heart health is a functional benefit that's sought really across the, the spectrum. But while like weight management is top of the list for um, customers that are like 35 and older, the younger demographic of shoppers prioritizes more uh, functional benefits around energy and mm -hmm. gut health. So we can also see their shifts being in how people are defining health and what aspects of health are most important to them. You also asked a, a bit about labels and claims. Um, we, we track this because it is, especially as you think about even the natural organic space and non-GMO, sure. there are an hundred percent natural. There are a lot of claims that, um, brands and retailers can lean on to, to resonate with shoppers. And what we try to do is make sure that we're, we're keeping a pulse on what matters to them and what resonates with them. And one of the, the interesting things that came out recently is that even um, more important than like 100% natural or non-GMO, the, the top claim that uh, our shoppers were looking for is guaranteed fresh. Yeah. And I think that indicates sort of a convergence of several things coming together uh, one is the prioritization of the quality of food that we put in our bodies. And the other is the that if you are eating food that is guaranteed fresh, there's also an opportunity there to reduce waste and stretch your dollars because you're ensuring that the food that you buy won't go bad. And so there can be this connection then between uh, eating healthy and being fiscally responsible and 
making good choices for the environment. So we, we can think about health as an opportunity within the, the, the products that we make and sell to hit on multiple benefits for customers. I wonder if we could dig a bit more into what's going on with private brands, because it seems not just Kroger, but lots of places are reporting pretty dramatic increases. And on the one hand, I can see where if you're really budget constrained, you sort of settle or feel forced to try a lesser option. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it also could be, I think, particularly because so many companies have have gone from, you know, beyond sort of private label Mm -hmm. to really building private brands as as strong alternatives to, to national brands at a better price. So I'm wondering the degree to which people are like, well, I'm sort of forced to do it. I'll put up with it for a while. But maybe when the economic circumstances improve, inflation comes down, hopefully at some point, they're back to where they were. But it could also be they've discovered, like, why am I paying mm-hmm. all this extra money for these brands? And actually, this is the same or maybe even better. So do you have any perspective on what of this behavior might persist if uh, economic conditions were to improve? It really depends on whether the products are able to meet customers' expectations. A lot of what we've seen within the Kroger ecosystem is that some customers may have tried private label for the first time because they were, they were trading down and then found that they didn't actually have, have to sacrifice quality right. uh, in order to, to save money. Now, I think this is true for both national brands and private label brands that you winning on price alone is never going to create stickiness and loyalty long term. You need to connect with the customer and make sure that the product tastes good, first yeah. of all, even in, in healthy categories where we're looking for um, health benefits. The, the number one attribute for, for customers in making a product decision is does it taste good? Sure. Um, and does the product connect with me on a, um, on a more personal level? So the... The stickiness for private label brands, I'd say, is going to have the same challenge as the stickiness for national brands. Mm -hmm. We see that the definitions around brand loyalty as a whole are evolving. We asked customers earlier this year to help define for us how they consider themselves to be brand loyal. And only 5% of customers said that being brand loyal to them meant that it's the only brand that they buy. Right. So brand loyalty no longer guarantees exclusivity. Rather, the vast majority of customers say... It's a, on a spectrum for me of it's based on my purchases is for me what brand loyalty means or it's a preference. I was going to say, there's a difference between preference and loyalty. Right? And some even say it just means it's a brand in my consideration set. Yeah. And so just how we historically have thought about brand loyalty is different from how consumers today are thinking about brand loyalty. So there's a real imperative to make sure that you are re-earning your place in every single basket. And that's true across the spectrum. Sure. Yeah. Now that, I think that makes a lot of sense. So let's maybe shift gears to what's going on um, in the world of digital, harmonized retail, unified commerce, what what have you. We saw this acceleration in e-commerce growth uh, during the pandemic. Uh, Some of it's persisted, maybe not as much as uh, some people thought. I'm curious what you're seeing about sort of the broader world of of how customers think about digital channels versus um, store channels. I often argue that the customer should be the channel. They don't necessarily spend so much time thinking about channels. I don't know if that's kind of what you've learned, but what what are you seeing there? Yeah. The pandemic certainly accelerated e-commerce adoption. But what we don't see is a, a massive shift between customers saying, I only shop in store or I only shop online. Even the most e-com loyal households within the Kroger ecosystem are spending about 40% of their trips in store. Yeah. Not only that, we asked customers 
how do you think about what you'll want, what you anticipate you'll want in the shopping experience of the future? And across all age groups, 70% of them say, I'm still going to want to shop in stores in the future. Now, there's a greater um, a acceptance and anticipation of adoption of pickup and delivery in the future, but not at the expense of also continuing to shop in store. So what's really important for retailers is to think about it from a customer perspective and yeah. say, customer wants choices. What a, what a concept. Right? <laughs> uh, customers don't have the same silos that yeah. we do internally in organizations. You think right. a lot of companies still have an e-commerce team and a digital team that might be separate from a team that works in brick and mortar. And a customer just thinks of it in different ways that I can get my a shopping trip on a Monday night versus right. a Sunday right. afternoon. Yeah. And so delivering a a more seamless experience for customers where you are, yes, leveraging the benefits that each channel can provide uniquely, but also creating consistency where it matters most for customers are the ones that are going to win. And what we see is that digital and e-commerce certainly provides a greater opportunity to deliver personalized experiences. You can create different content and products that show up for one person versus the next based on when they log in. You can't do that in store. Right. But what the in-store experience can provide uniquely is uh, appealing to all the senses. Mm. And it's a place where you can still have in-store sampling. You can smell food when you're coming in in the holiday season. You can see gen merch across the aisles and it's sort of like feel the season around you that sure. is uh, more inviting for exploration and discovery. What customers say that they really prioritize being consistent across e-commerce and in-store is value. So they want the same prices mm -hmm. and they want the right. same promotions to be available across both. So knowing where you can pull on different uh, benefits and levers between in-store and, and e-commerce while also creating consistency is, is really the key unlock. Well, and I think that gets back to what you said earlier. And I, I think, you know, I always think of brands, you know, you know we're, like you said, you know, we're, retailers tend to historically be ordered, organized vertically Right, but brands in the consumer's mind are really horizontal. Like, I, you know, I, I just see this, this brand I'm shopping with, and we go back and forth so seamlessly often between different channels. And sometimes I'm researching online, buying in store. Sometimes I'm going to the store, and then buying later. Uh, sometimes I want it delivered. Sometimes I want to pick it up. Sometimes I'm going to go in the store. So I just think this blur is is persistent, and and oftentimes we just make these false distinctions between well, this is e-commerce, which is sometimes well. It's how it's ordered, right? It's also yep. not how it's fulfilled. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of, I think, nuance here that is often not appreciated yeah. when we talk about it at a high level. There's even blurring of lines within a single shopping trip. Mm. So we mm. see many customers go online to check out deals, but still do their trip in store. There are customers that are checking the app in store to locate products and figure out what aisle they're right. on. And so, so is even, that e-commerce? Even yeah. the notion right. of no. there being a, a clear line and distinction is, isn't true anymore in a world where you have digitally influenced in-store sales mm. and you have technology then coming into the in-store experience, either through our handheld devices or mm. through technology that stores are leveraging in their own footprint and environment. Um, creates a lot of new opportunities for us to connect with customers in different ways, but will force the industry mm. to break down some of the silos we've had. Yeah. What do you say often see the distinction without a difference increasingly, right? Um, mm. Which I, I love the phrase. I, a quick question uh, off the book, off, off the script. Um, <laughs> you know, you've been in this business a long time looking at consumer data. If you and I, or the three of us, were sitting down 10 years ago having this conversation, uh -huh. would you think that we'd be 
consumers would be farther ahead in terms of shopping online. I mean, we looked around the world. We saw the UK. We right. saw South Korea. You know, we saw double-digit numbers, 15, 18, mm-hmm. 22%. I mean, pre-pandemic, you know, we were, the industry's one, two, whatever kind of percent. We got a boost in the, in the pandemic. Right. But we're still not significant in the way it is in different places around the world, right? right? So right. are you surprised, I guess, would be my, my question? Yes and no. I w- I'll answer it in a couple parts. So one is, we think 10 years ago, we were all looking at Europe. And we were saying, e-commerce is coming. Um, look at these other markets where it is m- much um, more adopted and embedded into shopping routines in a way that it isn't in, in the U.S. And so there was a lot of energy and aspiration around how do we get to 50% of our shopping trips moving online. I think what we've now moved to is it may not be dependent on the the number or a a hard milestone of when Mm. is it going to be 50% because we're also a different landscape. As you have more rural spaces and even suburban um, footprints, the e-commerce adoption looks different than when you're in a very urban setting where the, the shopping trip and routine for customers is just different. Right. And so the, I think what has been the big surprise is the, the notion of having this omni-channel hybrid shopping experience, mm-hmm. whereas 10 years ago, yeah, there was point. a thought yeah. that it was going to be binary and you were going right, to move from right. one to the other. Well, and I think a couple of quick comments on that. I think, you know, because distribution tended to be lined up, you know, there's e-commerce fulfillment, it's a thing, there's store fulfillment and kind of never the twain shall meet. There wasn't, you know, as much appreciation for what that was going to look like. And even some of the earlier models were sort of chasing, I mean, going back even to like Webvan or something like that, we're sort mm-hmm. of chasing, you know, be the Amazon of grocery uh, e-commerce, right? The other thing which, uh, and is why I was always skeptical about the penetration rates, mm-hmm. is at some point, like, I think the more people started to appreciate that the more you grew e-commerce, and that I mean more shipping stuff to people, the more money you lost. Like, I always mm-hmm. thought that... People at a certain point are going to say, you know, we're not going to keep investing a lot more money to lose a lot more money. And that at some point was going to slow down or force people, I think, in a way, you know, if you look at, say, what Target has done to say, well, you know, we're not going to try to out Amazon Amazon. You know, we're going to have to figure out a way to fulfill that actually gives us an opportunity to serve customers better, but also gives us an opportunity to make to make money. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, that was always a little bit problematic in terms of uh, the path to much greater numbers than, uh, than we still see today. Yeah. There was also, I think, much more focus in the early days on trying to understand, is it an incremental purchase? Mm. Am I, is e-com cannibalizing right. the in-store trip? And how do we make sure that we are truly driving incrementality as people move from one channel to the other. And I think there's also been a greater appreciation for just winning all the trips. Right. (laughs) And so if you want to keep customers within your ecosystem, you need more options for them. And it's less about trying to push them to one or the other and more about having the options available so they can choose to use one method and have the choice for one of those methods to be fulfilled by you. Right. Yeah, yeah, right on. I mean, I've, I've described that kind of discussion around cannibalization, like arguing about gravity. Like, it's going to happen. How do you structure your organization around it? Um, last question for you, and of course, we can't have a guest okay. without saying the magic words AI <laughs> and data and all yeah. those things. So how do you infuse, you know, where is the organization at in terms of, you know, taking data, you know, you're steeped in data to begin with. Is it at another level now that you've got 
AI, can it be the other level? Is it, is it, where are you at, where, where are you at with that and how do you think about it? Yep. So how we think about it is new tools that enable us to better understand what our customers truly need and want, and then both also deliver more personalized, relevant experiences for them. And it's leveraging all the technology mm. advancements and advanced analytics and AI personalization to do a better job on both ends of those spectrums, understanding the behavior and then delivering unique experiences based on that understanding. So I'll share, we've got three examples of how we're doing that today. One is, as we think about understanding customer behavior, it is enabling us to do that in a faster way. So by applying large, large language models to customer surveys and feedback, we're mm. able to now summarize and theme up top trends that emerge in um, a matter of minutes versus what would have historically taken days. So yeah. it actually helps us elevate the voice of the customer hmm. faster so that we can penetrate it across the organization in, in a quicker way. Yeah, super interesting. The second way we do this is through the, the digital experience. And so we are leveraging algorithms to improve the experience that each shopper has as they are navigating the site. And it is specifically then improving search algorithms and then also even substitution. And so we mm. think about this mm. as hey, AI and personalization is enabling us to make it easier for customers to find what they are looking for right. and, and make the shopping trip as easy as possible for them. And then the last one is uh, that we're able to better deliver more personalized content and value to customers beyond the shelf. Whereas I think if you go through a physical store on the shelf, you've got one, one price point that you're able to deliver. Mm -hmm. And through uh, personalization, we're able to deliver personalized, customized coupons and offers to shoppers based on the brands and categories that they love. And mm -hmm. so by doing that, we're able to increase uh, digital engagement and penetration and also deliver more tangible, relevant value mm -hmm. back to customers. Rogers and Peppers one-to-one -one at last. <laughs> <laughs> Delivered. With we waited long enough. We waited long enough. Everything we dreamed of will happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, Barbara, thanks so much for joining us here in the Vantage Podcast Studio. Grocery shops and a real treat. Uh, getting to uh, getting to know you and learn what's going on at Kroger. Very impressive work. And uh, so thanks again for joining us on the Remarkable Retail Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform so you can catch up with all our great episodes including renowned author, entrepreneur, and leadership teacher Seth Godin, talking about his incredibly timely and urgent book, The Song of Significance, A New Manifesto for Teams. And be sure and drop us that five-star review where you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us spread the word. And I'm Steve Dennis, strategy and innovation consultant, keynote speaker, and author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me at stephenpdennis.com and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Threads, and Instagram. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker, producer, and host of a series of retail trade podcasts, including this one. You can learn more about me on LinkedIn. Safe travels, everybody. <laughs>